Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. We're going to be in Colossians chapter number two here this morning. And we just finished up Colossians one, and Paul was talking about the things that we covered last week was about growing in maturity. And not only should we be growing in maturity, but we should also uh, be helping others grow in maturity as well. And uh, what we're going to see here in Colossians chapter 2, beginning here, is this struggle. Paul's going to continue this thought of growing in maturity, but he's going to tell us about a personal struggle that he has for these believers at Colossae. Now, if you can remember, Paul never met these believers Uh, Remember, he was in prison. Epaphras, who was a faithful minister in this church, came to visit Paul in prison and told him about uh, the Colossians' uh, faith in Christ. And so then he writes them to this letter and addresses some of the things that were going on in that church. And his struggle for these believers was that they would remain firm in their faith. And what had been going on is there was a, some false teachers that had arisen in that church, and they were teaching certain things that you had to have a secret knowledge about Christ, and maybe you didn't really fully understand everything there was to know about Jesus, and if you come and listen to what I have to say, boy, then you'll really, really know uh, what, uh, what uh, Jesus wants for your life. And um, Paul was just trying to help these believers and, and tell them some things, And uh, Paul wanted these believers here to remain firm in their faith and not be drawn away by some fraudulent teachings, some uh, strange teachings that weren't necessarily found uh, in Scripture. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever been duped or deceived by somebody? (laughs) It happens to all of us, believe it or not. And if we think that we're exempt from false teaching or false doctrine... Uh, We're not. I mean, here's these believers that, uh, I mean, we're talking only just a few years after Christ had resurrected from the dead, and there were believers that were being duped and deceived by false teaching about who Jesus really was. It's estimated that in the U.S., one in ten adults will fall victim to a scam or fraud every year. 1.3 million children have their identity stolen every year. And you are more likely to become a victim of identity fraud by having your wallet snatched than you are via online fraud. When it comes to victims of doorstep fraud, 85% are over 65. In 2018, internet-enabled theft, fraud, and exploitation were responsible for a massive $2.7 billion in financial losses. In 2019, phishing attempts grew by 65%. One in 10 profiles on free dating sites is a scam. And in 2018, 82% of organizations were victims of payment fraud. So believe it or not, even in churches, there are people who will try to deceive. Paul warned the elders at the church at Ephesus that after his departure, fierce wolves 
would come in. In Acts 20, 28 through 30, he says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. You see, the problem with spiritual deception is how it comes. It is subtle and it is crafty. Why? Because that's how Satan works. He's subtle and he is crafty. If you're waiting for Satan to show up in a red jumpsuit with horns and a pitchfork, I'm sorry, he's not going to show up like that. He shows up very subtly and with craftiness. That's how he works to deceive people. We find in Scripture that uh, he poses as an angel of light. And it even says that his servants of righteousness promise freedom while inwardly they are enslaved by various lusts, as what 2 Peter 2, 18-19 teaches us. Jesus warned about wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew 7, 15. And their disguise enabled them to mix among the flock. In other words, you didn't really know that they were a wolf, but in reality, they were just in sheep's clothing. In our text here in Colossians 2.4 that we're really going to look at, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So there's this great struggle that he has for these believers at this church, and he says, I don't want you to be deceived. I want you to be firm in your faith because I don't want you to be deluded with plausible arguments, arguments that sound very good and nice and seems like, well, you know, that seems like, yeah, that, that really could be it. And Paul has this agony, this, uh, this uh, uh, desire for them to remain firm in their faith. So Paul is agonizing for them to not only be mature in their faith, but that they would remain firm in their faith, even in the midst of false teachers and false teaching. I believe that all of us who are true believers in Christ should be agonizing for maturity, not only in our faith, but in the lives of others, but we should also be agonizing that we would remain firm in the faith and help others remain firm in the faith as well. And so like Paul, we should do that. We should agonize and struggle so the church may become what God has called the church to become. So how are we to do that? What does that look like? What should we be striving for? And hopefully we can cover uh, some of those things here this morning. So this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning. Remain firm in your faith through love, understanding Christ, and knowing your place in the body of Christ. Remain firm in your faith through love, understanding Christ, and knowing your place in the body of Christ. Let's take a look here at the first number one. Remain firm through encouragement and love. Listen to what Paul has to say here. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. One of the themes that you often see in Paul's letters is his heartfelt love that he has for other believers. 
Here in this text, he had not even seen these people, but yet his love for them is, is quite evident. I would say that it's almost as similar as the concern that Paul had for the believers at Thessalonica. And he tells them where he compares himself to a gentle nursing mother and to a loving, concerned father. In Colossians 2, 2, he expresses his desire or prayer for these people along with the believers at Laodicea. He says, I want you to know of how great a struggle that I have for you. He wants their hearts to be encouraged having been knit together through love. And really, as he goes on, he talks about attaining to all the knowledge of the fullness of Jesus Christ. That reminds me of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, 16, 19. He says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, according to the riches to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. One of the things that you see in Paul's prayers is the, that the revelation of God is not separate from community. In other words, they go hand in hand. Being in community with other believers goes hand in hand with the revelation of who God is. So this means that the cultivation of community is so essential in a church body. You see, it's great that we gather together here, and when we gather here, what, we, what is our primary purpose to gather? To worship Jesus. We're here to sing songs about Jesus. We're here to pray to Jesus. We're here to testify about Jesus. We're here to learn about Jesus. We share about how Jesus has been working in our lives. But if we're just getting together one time a week, is that enough to cultivate love for one another? I say no. That's why it's very important that we are gathering together, not just here, but we are gathering with each other, one-on-one, -on -one, maybe even with others. And as we gather together, we come to know God in a greater way. Why? Because we are sharing our lives with those people, and that community is growing. And Paul really hones in on this because he talks about that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. So Paul wants their hearts to be encouraged. What does Paul mean by this? He wants them to be encouraged in heart or to have a strengthened heart, as it also can be translated. That word encourage comes from the same word which we see used elsewhere in the New Testament, which means to come alongside. Uh, it's similar to the word Jesus called the Holy Spirit in John 14, 6. He told the disciples he would send a counselor or a paraclete, one who would come alongside and help. And so we should not minimize this because an encouraged heart or strengthened heart is very important for Christians. Listen to what Nehemiah said to the Jews that were weeping during a spiritual revival. He said in Nehemiah 8, 10, Go... And enjoy 
choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your, what? Strength. You see, the joy of the Lord is the strength of both an individual Christian and the church community. That's why it's so important that we gather together and we are encouraged, we are strengthened together. Listen to what Paul said to the Philippian church. He said, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Did you get that? Rejoicing is actually a safeguard for you. Paul says, I don't mind telling you to rejoice over and over again because this is a protection for you. Whatever is most important, we repeat, do we not? In fact, we repeat it often. At the end of the book, Paul says this again to the Philippians who were facing many attacks. Philippians 1, they were going through persecution in verse 29. In chapter 3, false teachers were calling the congregations back to the law and specifically circumcision in verse number 2. In chapter 4, we find that two women were arguing and fighting in the church in, verse, uh, in uh, chapter 4, verse number 2. And Paul commands them again to do what? To have and be encouraged in the Lord by rejoicing. Listen to what he says in Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And so Paul repeats it twice. Rejoice in the Lord. Why is it so important for us as believers and the church, individually and as a community, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be rejoicing? Why? This is the reason. Because a Christian who is discouraged and depressed is a Christian who is out of commission. Can't do much. They can't serve. They can't fight for themselves spiritually. They're often prone to all types of sin. The discouraged person is prone to addictions to drugs, alcohol, relationships, other vices. And if Satan can get you down, many times he can pull you into a hole that will be very hard for you to get yourself out of. That's why community is so important in the life of the church. That we're together. That we're meeting together. Notice the connection here. He says, I want your hearts to be encouraged. How, Paul? How, have our heart, how will our hearts be strengthened in rejoicing, how will our hearts be encouraged and strengthened? Look what he says. By being knit together in love. Paul's heart of concern for these believers just oozes out of this text. He says, I want your hearts to be knit together in love. True Christianity is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the inward person. It's not about outward conformity or appearance, but about love for God and for one another from the heart. It's not about keeping up an image or veneer of righteousness by rules, but rather about how we think and live when others aren't looking. Think of that word picture there, knit together. How many of you ladies in here knit, crochet, do something like that? Okay. 
Now, I don't crochet, I don't knit, so if I use the wrong terminology here, please forgive me, okay? But when I think of knitting things together, I think of you are bringing several different strands of material and you're drawing them closer and closer together and then they're interwoven and then they're joined where it makes one strong piece. You get the picture there? Paul is saying your lives need to be drawn together, different lives, different backgrounds, different opinions, whatever those things may be. They're being drawn together and they're being knitted together to make one strong piece. He says, I want you to remain firm in your faith. How do we do this? We're encouraged with our hearts being knit together. They're drawn together by love. You see, that talks about unity there, and it happens through love. You see, the unity of the body must be worked out practically. Paul said something similar to the Philippian church. Listen to what he says in Philippians 1.27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. You see, the Philippian church was being persecuted. They were being attacked by legalistic false teachers. And some of the members were divided. And he commanded them to stand firm in one spirit as one man. They were being knit together. And this must be the goal of every church, I believe, as well. But it's not something that comes easily, is it? It is something that must be worked for, labored for in every congregation. Why? Because Satan works hard. He works overtime to bring disunity within the body of Christ. That's why we got to be encouraged. That's why we got to be strengthened in love with our hearts being knit together. He may try to bring disunity in the ministries of the church, in our fellowships, and even among leadership. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And he commands them to make every effort to keep the unity. This would include forgiving one another is what Ephesians 4.32 teaches. It would include being a peacemaker and helping uh, others be unified is what uh, Philippians 4.2-3 calls us to do. It also includes being humble and considering others' interests over our own is what Philippians 2.3 teaches. There's a story told about two rams that were on a bridge coming from different directions. And the bridge was very narrow. And as the rams began to approach closer and closer, it was very, very apparent that only one ram was going to be able to get by. And as we're thinking about these rams, there's this picture of these rams starting to beginning to get into a, a stance of ready to, to go at it, to get across that bridge and buck the other one off. But one of those rams laid down and allowed the other ram to pass by. 
Sometimes animals have more wisdom than humans. Many times, to have peace, we must lay down our pride and be humble. Sometimes in the midst of seeking to preserve the unity, we must even accept being wronged. Sometimes we must turn the other cheek, is what Matthew 5.39 teaches. We must make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, Ephesians 4.3 tells us. So how are we going to accomplish this? How are we going to see ourselves and other believers have their hearts encouraged and knit together in love? Well, I believe Paul really gives us the answer here in this passage. Notice verse number one. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have. You see, Paul says the desire for them to live this way was not just a struggle, but what? A great struggle. I believe that Paul's great struggle for these believers whom he had never met was his struggle in prayer. I say this because he uses the same word when he refers to Epaphras in Colossians 4.12, who is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. That word struggle and laboring is the same word that we get our word agonizing from. It's used for like ones that train for, for athletic type events. They agonize. There's hardships and difficulties in the training to accomplish the goal. And Paul says, I struggle, I have this agony for you in prayer. In Colossians 4, 2-3, Paul specifically calls this church to prayer. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. There are two things to take away from this. First, if you love people, you will pray for them. I would encourage you as a believer in Christ, if we want to see this church drawn together, encouraged, and knit together in love, that means we have to agonize in prayer for one another. If we want to see ourselves and others growing in maturity, if we want to see ourselves standing firm in our faith, if we want to see others standing firm in our faith, that means we're going to have to agonize in prayer for one another. We're going to have to spend time for, in prayer for one another. I encourage you, take their church directory. Pray for the people by name. You say, well, I don't even know them. Paul didn't even know these people. He never met them. But what did he do? He prayed for them. He says, I'm agonizing in prayer for you. I'm praying for you. Second, the word struggle implies that praying for others is not easy. And if you find praying for others to be difficult, welcome to the process. It's hard. So this is a great way for us to remain firm in our faith by struggling for one another in prayer, having our hearts encouraged through the fellowship and community of love as our hearts are knit together in unity. Here's the second thing. Remain firm by having a full understanding of Christ. Look what he says here. He says, I want your hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. If you can recall back with me in chapter number one, Paul spent a lot of time 
on talking about who Jesus was. Remember that whole thing? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead, right? He, he exalts Christ and he tells us and gives us a clear picture of who Jesus really was. And he reveals to us and tells us that the riches of the glory of the mystery that God has now revealed is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory in Colossians 1.27. And here in our text, probably Paul was countering uh, these false teachings that were going on in this church. And uh, they emphasized this secret knowledge of, of the mysteries of God. And Paul kind of talks about that, the riches of full assurance, the understanding, the knowledge of God's mystery. And so Paul comes back to that theme and says that he wants these believers to do what? And he tells them in uh, verses 2 and 3, he says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the, all the riches of full assurance, the God's mystery, understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And now this was the very thing that the Gnostic cult of this church was attacking. It was attacking the deity of Christ, who Christ really was. And there are cults still today that attack this. Uh, Mormons do that. Jehovah Witnesses do that, right? They come to your door. They want to talk to you about their Jesus, right? They have a different Jesus. It's not the same Jesus, okay? Um, their Jesus cannot save. The only, the only Jesus that can save is the Christ of the Bible, as revealed in Scripture here. And so Paul is, is, is battling with this, and he calls Christ, notice what he says here, verse number two, he calls Christ the mystery of God. It's interesting to note that this truth had actually become part of an early church hymn in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. This was actually a hymn that they sang in the church. It says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on the world, was taken up in glory. You see, Christ is the only way to godliness. That's it. What were these teachers in this church teaching, these false teachers? They were teaching, oh, hey, in order for you to be godly, you're going to have to abase yourself. You're going to have to do some things. Maybe you have to have circumcision done. You're gonna ha I mean, there was all these things that they were teaching. Oh, if you really want to have the knowledge and the mystery of who God is, you're going to have to do these things. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. It's Christ. You know what the answer is to every problem in our life is? Christ. Because notice what he says here. He says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He says, it, it, which are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You need help for your marriage? You know where you need to turn? Turn to Christ and his example that he, he shows us in Ephesians 5. You need help learning how to raise your children. What do you do? You turn to Christ. You have relationship issues. What do you do? You turn to Christ. Christ is the answer for every difficulty, problem that we face in life. And so it's this mystery that has been revealed. Now notice what he says here. I say this, verse number four, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments or fine-sounding arguments. He was using language that was common of lawyers uh, during the day. 
And so there are people that will try to use arguments that sound really, really good and try to deceive you. Paul says, I want you to remain firm in your faith. And how do you do that? You have to be firm by having a full understanding of Christ. So how do we do this? Here's a couple things. Number one, be Christ-centered and biblical in your thinking. The Bible is our only source of divine revelation about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible should be really our only source of faith and practice. And so if we are going to remain firm in our faith and have a good understanding of Christ, that means we have to be Christ-centered and biblical in our thinking. Why? Because of the plausible arguments that come into our lives every day. In Romans chapter 12, verse number 2, it tells us that we are supposed to be renewing our minds day by day. Renewing our minds. What does that involve? That means that we need to be in the Word and allowing the Word of God to change how we think. And so we need to become Christ-centered and biblical in our thinking. Here's the second thing. Be committed to the body of Christ as you grow in relationship with one another. Again, the result of both a strong heart and unified love is complete understanding of who Christ is. See, it is impossible to come to a proper understanding of who Christ is apart from the church and right relationships within it. This is why gathering as a, as a body of believers is so important. Because we come to know who Christ is. In Scripture, there's no place for the Lone Ranger Christians. The Christian life is not a life that's meant to be walked out by yourself and alone. We need other believers to come alongside and encourage and help and strengthen us. That's the whole part of being in the body of Christ. Oftentimes, when sheep get by themselves, they, be, they fall prey to the wolf. Why? Because they're not in the pack anymore. They're over there off by themselves. And so we need to be committed uh, in relationships with one another. Thirdly, be united on the essentials of biblical doctrine while practicing loving tolerance on non-essentials. Take notice again of that phrase, knit together. This word also means knit or held together. Paul used it in the same phrase in uh, Colossians uh, 2.19 as uh, he said here, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. And I think that's probably the meaning here, but note that the unity is not divorced from understanding the true knowledge of Christ. As Paul states in Ephesians 4.13 and 15, we are to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God as we speak the truth in love. Now there are core biblical doctrines that are essential. And we cannot waver from those. And as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, these are things that are non-negotiable. And we must stand firm on those. 
But then there are things that are non-essentials that, not, that are not essential to salvation. Okay? All of us in here come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And that's fine. And that's what's great about the body of Christ is we can be united and knit together in love. Why? Because we have one common goal, and that is Jesus Christ. But if we allow non-essentials to become our mantra, if we allow non-essentials to become the thing that we say, bless God, this is I'm going to hold to these types of things, you know, and if you, whatever, right? What does that allow? That allows opportunity for division to come in. So if you have a non-essential that you believe strongly in, great, that's wonderful. I'm happy for you. Okay? If I have a non-essential that I believe in, you know what your, your attitude should be? Great, wonderful, great, I'm happy for you. Okay? But we don't allow those non-essentials to become opportunity for division. Because why? Because we're being knit together in love. Okay? Here's the last thing. Remain firm by holding the line. Listen to what Paul says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I love this verse because it's awesome. When I read this verse, I picture soldiers grouped together, holding together to remain firm. I say this because there's two words in this uh, verse here that Paul uses. He uses good order and firmness. These are military words. A great Bible expositor, Warren Wearsby, had this to say about this passage. The words order and firmness are military terms. They describe an army that is uh, solidly united against the enemy. Order describes the arrangement of the army in ranks with each soldier in its proper place. Not everybody can be a five-star general, but the general could never fight the battle alone. Firmness pictures the soldiers in battle, formation presenting a solid front to the enemy. Christians ought to make progress in discipline and obedience just as soldiers on the battlefield. And I feel this analogy is very appropriate for them because as Satan was strategically trying to attack and destroy the church, the church should be what? Holding firm together, being knit together. They're holding the line. Paul says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. In Ephesians 5, 22-33, we get this picture of the bride of Christ. Glorious, wonderful. But then, in Ephesians 6, it tells us as believers in Christ, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be putting on the armor of God. So we have this picture of the warring bride, Right? Can you imagine a bride wearing combat boots, taking out a sword, shink, right? Come on, let's do battle, right? That's the picture here. The church is the warring bride. Are we holding firm? Are we holding the line? One of my most favorite movies that I enjoy watching, and I, I probably watch it maybe two, three times a year, is uh, Gladiator with Russell Crowe. You guys ever seen that movie, right? Great movie, right? Here's Russell Crowe. He becomes the gladiator. He's in the Colosseum. And they're all gathered together out in the Colosseum. And the, the door's about ready to open up. And something is going to be coming out to attack them. And Russell Crowe says this. He goes, whatever comes out of that gate, 
We have a better chance of defeating it if we hold together, if we stay together, right? And that's the idea here. As a church, we have a better chance of not being deceived by plausible arguments. You have a better chance of not being deceived by plausible arguments if we hold together, if we have good order about ourselves. Now, here's two things about this, okay? Number one, we hold the line by knowing our place in God's army. Order means that there's a place for everybody. Do you know your place within the body of Christ? What is it? And are you using your spiritual gifts to keep order within the body of Christ? Secondly, we hold the line by remaining firm. That word firm can also be translated as steadfast. And so we got to remain firm. we got to have steadfastness to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So remain firm. Hold fast to Christ. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.